in this thing about genealogies, right, in our history. So before I, before I talk about this one, I want to pick it up again and read Matthew chapter 1 and the first six verses, all right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, who we talked about a few weeks ago, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz. I'm calling it Salmon because I hate to make him sound like he's a fish, so I don't really know. Uh, but uh, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, I, I want to say this, we all have things in our history that we would rather not have repeated routinely, right? That's got to be one of them for David, don't you think? Couldn't it have just read so-and-so the father, so-and-so the father, and so-and-so David the father of Solomon? Right? If, if he were writing the genealogy, I'm pretty sure he'd have stopped there. Right? Don't you think? Because why would it matter to the genealogy that he was the father of Solomon by this wife of Uriah, the Hittite, that's just bound to cause questions. It's bound to make people think, wait, she doesn't even get her name? She doesn't even get named in the story? So we've been talking about these, these ladies who are part of this genealogy who, who are, have some sort of scandal associated with their name. Here's the worst part about poor Bathsheba. She, she doesn't even get named and the scandal really wasn't so much about her as it was about David, right? So we're going to talk about that this morning. I want to remind you the kind of the theme of this whole series of messages is you, can, you are not broken enough that you can mess up God's plan. Uh, when I said it a couple of weeks ago here, I've mentioned it in a couple of places, and it seems to resonate. When God arranged his plan and purpose for the world. He already factored in your stupidity, <laughs> right? He factored in my stupidity. I cannot mess up God's plan. I am not that powerful. So we're reading and studying stories about people whose lives were completely broken. And here's David the king, and we're going to spend some time talking about some of the great stuff and the great promise that God made to David. And it's, it's all about the mercy and the faithfulness of God. These stories are not about these people. These stories are about God. There are stories about faith. There are stories about the grace of God. There are stories about the mercy and the faithfulness of God. Many times the stories are in spite of us, right? Not because of us. And so this is yet another one. And Jesus, in the line of the Messiah Jesus, is all these unique circumstances and scandalous situations. I want to begin all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm not going to read 
verses for you yet. I'm going to do a lot of summary today until we get toward the end, okay? Because I, th- I think it's useful, or I hope, to uh, get some reminders about David. Here he is, David, the father of Solomon by Uriah the Hittite. We're going to talk about that story, but I want to get a little further back in the account first. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have a record of what is called the Davidic Covenant, one of the main covenants that God made with his people. And this is the covenant from which we get the concept of an unending kingdom and the house that Jesus would come from, right? So, so there's, this is the origin of it. So David was Israel's greatest earthly king. You would ask any uh, Jewish person, and you would know he's David's, David was their greatest earthly king, and it is because of this unexpected promise from God. Sorry, I'm getting out of, out of sync in my notes, aren't I? I apologize. This unexpected promise that came kind of out of the blue, because in 2 Samuel 7, David has just said to Nathan the prophet, I just feel like I've got to build a house for God. We've had all of these things. Look at all that God has done, and I'm dwelling in this beautiful palace, and I want to build a house for God. And Nathan says, go for it. And before Nathan gets to the front door, God says to him, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And he goes back, and here is this, this incredible thing that happens. But think about David. So he, is, he was anointed king as a young boy, long before he actually became king. The whole, the whole story about Samuel who went, and went to the brothers, and the first one came, and he's tall and good-looking and all this stuff. And, and he thought, well, surely he's going to be the king. And God said, no, don't, don't look. Don't look at the outside. That's not necessarily the issue here. And they go through all of the brothers and eventually come down to, to Samuel says, is there anybody left? And they, well, yeah, David, but he's out with the sheep. He certainly can't be the one, right? And so they call him and God says to Samuel, yep, he's the one, anoint him. And now it's a series of years before that. David's an incredible musician, right? We'd love to have him on our worship team. He, he wrote probably half of the Psalms that we have recorded for us in the scripture, He was courageous. Uh, If you're familiar with his story, you know he refers to a time when when he grabbed a a bear and killed him, and when he grabbed a lion by his mane and killed him. Like, that's, you know, pretty big stuff, right? For a young guy, maybe a teenager. And so it is with that in mind, he says, so Goliath is not going to be a big deal, right? And so he goes out to Goliath, and with a slingshot, God guides that stone, and it takes Goliath out, and David cuts his head off. Like, this is like R-rated movie stuff, right? It's going to be blood, violence, gore, and as it turns out, some sex involved. Like, this is R-rated stuff. You don't write things that you're trying to make people think well of you with all this stuff included, right? Let's, let's put it, let's make it nicer. Let's make it neater. Let's make it a better package. David receives this unexpected, uh, incredible, rather, promise. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Now, therefore, this is God telling Nathan what to say. You shall say to my servant David... Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Then, uh, rather, from that time, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, uh, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's talking about who will be Solomon in the immediate, right? But the forever peace, I can tell you this, when Luke speaks of the house and lineage of David, this is what he's referring to. Luke is thinking back in history to the time that God said to David, you are not only king, but you are going to be, it is your throne that will be established forever. And he responds, the rest of this chapter that I'm not going to read for you, he responds with humble gratitude. Who am I? Why would you do this for me? You have chosen me. I'm the youngest. I'm not the strongest, but... I don't even get it. Why would you choose me? But I'm grateful. And so I'm, he says, so I'm praying that you will fulfill your word, build this house, build this kingdom, give me this legacy. God promises to do it. He's going to do it. And now the next several chapters, which I'm not going to read for you, are filled with really uh, positive things. I've called it undefeated consolidation. David is getting the kingdom fully under his authority and his kingship. He's going out. He's beating everybody. He has already recaptured the ark from the Philistines. He retook the fortress of Zion from the Jebusites. It would become known as the city of David. All of these phrases that we hear in the Christmas story originated back here in 2 Samuel. He was a great warrior. He established the kingdom of Israel. Chapters 8 and 10 especially talk about that. And then in chapter 9, his tender side comes through. And in chapter 9, we see him being loyal to his friend, his loyalty to his friend Jonathan. Again, if you read back in the story of David, he had this guy who was the son of Saul who would have been the rightful heir to the throne, but they became blood brothers and were deeply connected to each other. And, and Jonathan ended up out, and David ended up the king. And so after he has begun to settle things, he, he says to his advisors, I need to find a descendant of Saul and a descendant of Jonathan to be kind to for the sake of my friend Jonathan. And so he does, finds a, finds a man uh, who he can bring in under his care, and he lives with the king and in, under the king's care for the rest of his life because he's showing loyalty to his friend. He is tenacious. He is conscientious. He is working hard at building God's kingdom and consolidating it, and yet he's a loyal, compassionate friend. What a great guy. 
everybody would have wanted David to marry their daughter. And then we get to chapter 11. Unashamed sinfulness. He just blatantly steps completely out of line. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Man, that sounds like the beginning of a Lifetime movie or something, right? Maybe not Lifetime because it's going to get pretty seedy. But he begins by shirking his responsibility. You can read a bunch of different commentators. I I read one who tried to find a way to blame Bathsheba for this whole thing because what was she doing on the roof like that? But I don't think that's the problem. I think the first problem was he stayed home. In fact, it specifically says to us, it's when the kings go out to battle and he remained at Jerusalem. Now, again, this is a cultural thing that we don't get, right? We don't like wait for seasonal battle times. Oh, it's the spring. Let's go shoot each other, right? It's just what they did. They couldn't function. It's not like they had air support or anything. They, they had to go, and they, they waited until the spring, and that's when all these maneuvers were being made, and everybody was getting settled, and you went out and you protected yourself, or if you're expanding your kingdom, you know, all of that. I'm not familiar with that culture, but it's what they did. And all of the kings led their people, except for David, who stayed home. He was shirking his responsibility. And with nothing better to do, he falls prey to temptation. He's out, hanging out on the balcony of the palace, which surely is bigger and larger and more beautiful and taller than any other building in any other house in town. And he gets out on his balcony, and he looks down over the side, and here's this really attractive young woman bathing. And he doesn't turn around and walk away. See, there's the problem. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about temptation today, but can I tell you, the sin is not in temptation. The sin is in the second look, right? He should have turned around and walked away. He should have, he should have been at battle with his men, but even if he stayed home, he should have turned around and walked away. But he stayed, and he looked, and he abused his authority, and he committed adultery. He went in with his eyes wide open. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he knows who she is. He knows who her dad is. He knows she's married. So... David sent messengers and took her. That does not sound to me like they winked at each other from the balcony. That sounds to me like he abused his authority. And she came to him and 
He lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. He is in it with his eyes wide open. And he asks the guys, who is that? They tell her who she is. He knows everything about her. He knows this is absolutely wrong. And he goes and he takes her. And the rest of this chapter is about an attempted cover-up and murder of her husband. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but can I summarize it? She sends word in the fifth verse. The woman conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. It is specific to say she was cleansing herself from her impurity. It was that time of the month, and that was over. She was clearly not pregnant. And now she sends word after David has taken her and says, I'm pregnant. He knows immediately this is his child. So what does he do? Covers it up. I mean, good night. Let's not let that get known. So he sends word to the battlefront where her husband is, where he was supposed to be, and gets Uriah to come home. And he says, dude, you've been working hard. Go spend the night with your wife. And Uriah refuses. He sleeps on the doorstep of David's house. Someone has said, well, let me get a little further. David, the next morning, they find him there, and David's like, what in the world? You're home. Go enjoy your wife. Oh, no, I can't do that. Not when, not when my, my brothers, my fellow soldiers are out fighting. I can't stay home here and do that. So the next night, David invites him to a party. I'll get this fixed. So he gets a, And he gets him a few shades off, right? Gets him drunk. Go home to your wife. The next morning, he wakes up and finds him at the doorstep of the palace again. Someone has said Uriah had more integrity drunk than David did fully sober. He was not going to go and do that. He was not going to go enjoy his wife. His, his fellow soldiers were at war. He wasn't coming home on a, a short leave just for a conjugal visit. That wasn't going to happen. Not to him. So, David sends a note back, a sealed letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and says, okay, I want you to get close, get a little closer than you should, make sure you put Uriah at the front where he's most likely to be killed. And then I want you to pull back a little bit. So they do. And several guys are killed, and Uriah is among them, and he dies. These are horrible stories, right? Weird stories to be talking about at Christmas. This stuff never happens in an instant. That's your next point. Can I take just a minute and talk about temptation and falling into sin? I know it's Christmas, and we'll come back around to that, I promise, but you, you can... You can give in to temptation at Christmas too, right? I know, nobody wants to say amen to that, but um, it never happens in, a, in an instant. If you look back in the history of David, you would find recorded in the scripture he already has seven wives. 
He wasn't supposed to have seven wives. God never said that was okay. God said, do not multiply wives. But he did anyway because it was culture. I mean, if you make a treaty with this country and that country and that king over there, you marry one of their kids and that seals the treaty. He had concubines. He had done in terms of his personal behavior that which God already didn't like. And he was living in a season of success. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that sometimes when we're in a season of success, we are most susceptible to temptation? Things are good. And what happens? We forget that we depend on the Lord. We forget that we depend on God day by day by day. When things are a little harder, we remember that. It's one of my great fears about being well prepared for a sermon. So, so if, if God blesses you through a sermon, I'm really grateful to hear about it. But can I tell you when I usually hear about it, it's when I feel ill prepared. <laughs> it's when I just didn't have enough time to get in. I mean, I got my outline in on time, but then I'm working it and I just, it was a busy week or whatever. And, and, and I go home and I tell Jody, I just think that was a horrible sermon. <laughs> and you know, she's generally kind about that. No, 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 it was fine, you know. But it is almost invariably those ones that somebody comes and says, man, that just really ministered to me. And I am reminded it is about what God is doing through what you're doing, not about what you're doing. This stuff never happens in an instant. So I'm going to give you an acrostic to remember when it comes to temptation. These are things that uh, I learned this from a fellow years ago. It's the acrostic is the word halt. I probably should have put it on the screen, but I didn't. Halt, H-A-L-T. You got to figure out in your own heart and mind which of these things, perhaps a couple of them, that put you in the greatest posture of of being uh, available to temptation. The first is hungry. Not physically hungry, though that could be it too, but I just mean wanting more. You're dissatisfied. You're not content with what's going on in your life right now. Whatever the particular thing may be, it's when you tend to be susceptible to say, oh man, I just need a drink, or whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that you might be tempted by, you're hungry. Secondly, you're and, and that could be for power or for, for passion or for wealth or whatever it is, right? People are tempted when they just don't feel like they have enough. I'm discontented. I'm hungry. Secondly, angry. I could have said anemic, but I learned it with angry. I just mean weak, like emotionally weak and worn down. Anger, discouragement, frustration. The third one is lonely or bored. How many times have people just stumbled on into sin, not paid attention because they were just bored or tired? I mean, physically tired. When you're tired, your defenses are down or whatever is going on physically, right, that puts me in a more vulnerable. So hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's probably during one of those four things, those four seasons for you, that you're most susceptible to temptation. So be alert. When it's been tiresome and wearisome and you have no worries about being bored because you've been just working, burning the candle at both ends and you're weary and you're not getting enough sleep, have enough awareness, self-awareness that you realize, man, i got to be cautious. 
to stay close to the Lord because this is a, a season that could make me susceptible. Whatever the particular one is for you, hang on to it. But I can tell you this, like I said earlier, you cannot mess up God's plan because of the unwavering faithfulness of God. And chapter 12 is what I'm talking about, right? So you get to the end of chapter 11. Verse, chapter 11, verse 26 says, But the Lord was displeased. So, so Uriah, uh, the wife of Uriah, heard that her husband was dead. She went home. She lamented over her husband. Oh, it wasn't verse 26. Let me just keep reading. It's verse 27. I apologize. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And nobody would have known any different except those few guys who are certainly not going to say anything. Uriah is dead. David has covered it up. He's done a good job. And the last sentence of chapter 11 says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I... On the one hand, in Christ, God is happy with me, but I don't want to face the displeasure of God. I can't make him love me more, but God saw, my point is, God saw what nobody else saw. And so he sent Nathan to confront him. The confrontation of Nathan in chapter 12 is a very powerful thing, and and again, I'm not going to read through the whole thing. I know I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of summarizing a lot. But Nathan comes to David and he tells him this story. So uh, a, a very wealthy guy had visitors come. And he wanted to provide dinner for them. And he didn't want to take of his flocks and herds. He wanted something, though, for a nice dinner. And so he went to his neighbor who had one lamb. And he went over and he took the lamb and he... He killed the lamb, and he fed it to his visiting neighbors, and that man was left without this lamb, this one lamb who wasn't just a lamb. He was almost a pet. And, and of course, if we're hearing a story like that, we're like, what in the world? This rich guy stealing from this poor guy? And David is furious and said, we ought to kill him. We ought to take his livestock, give it. And Nathan just points his craggy old finger at him and says, you are that man which was a really dangerous thing to do to the king, right? You don't just point your finger at the king and say, you're the bad guy in this situation. You've sinned and you have stolen and you have murdered. But David, in verse 13, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He immediately acknowledged his sin. That's really important, right? And Nathan said, the Lord has also put away from your sin from you. You shall not die. But who does? That child dies. And then we have Psalm 51. Again, I'm not going to read through the whole thing. It would be worth your time this afternoon. David's expression of his grief and what he had done and how he had sinned against the Lord. Of course he had sinned against Bathsheba. Of course he had sinned against Uriah by having him murdered. Of course all of these ripple effects of his sin were a bad thing. But he acknowledged that fundamentally it was his sin was against God. And he confessed his sin and he had a broken heart over his sin. 
Some people say, well, I, I said I was sorry. What more do you want? Let me, let me tell you this. There is a difference between what I would call worldly grief and godly grief. Paul talks about it when he's writing to the Corinthians in his second letter. He says this, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I, that, that simply means, as, as I understand it, godly grief breaks my heart and then I can move on. Worldly grief weighs me down and I can't, I'm stuck. Godly grief turns me to Jesus. Godly grief turns me back to Jesus to remember if I'm already a believer what it is that he did for me. Godly grief turns me back to the gospel to remind me Jesus paid for this. I am okay with God. I'm right with God because I've confessed my sin and I've trusted in Jesus, right? That's godly grief. It breaks my heart and then it does its work and I can move on. Worldly grief just weighs me down. I'm awful. I did the bad thing. I shouldn't have done this. That's the kind of person you hear that says, I don't think God could ever forgive me for. That's worldly grief that doesn't understand the magnitude of God's faithfulness to his promise. David sought the mercy of God. That child died as judgment for David's adultery. The next son born to that relationship of David and Bathsheba was Solomon. And then we're back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6. David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The genealogy brings up one of the lowest points in David's life, one of the most shameful seasons in his reign as king. Not all that long after he had gotten this incredible promise from God about this unending, eternal kingdom, He falls into the depths of sin, but God, because of his faithfulness, allows David to repent of his sin. He forgives him of his sin. He brings a child from that relationship that should never have happened. And somehow, in the miracle of God's sovereignty, he brings through that line the Messiah, Jesus. That's incredible, right? Nobody would have laid it out that way. None of us would have planned that. None of us would have written that into the script. And if you were to go back in history prior to that event, you wouldn't have said to David, listen, dude, go for it, because God's going to just work out in spite of it anyway, right? That's why Paul says we don't, we don't sin so grace can abound. But we recognize that I cannot sin and mess up God's plan. God is more powerful than that. And he's more faithful to his word than that. So a couple of thoughts to take with you. We are sinful people. I know, Merry Christmas. <laughs> right? You don't need to find out who's naughty and nice. We're all naughty. Right? We're all sinful people. But Jesus saves. 
I read this, uh, actually, Pastor Nate Weiss from our Gloucester campus found this, and I asked him to send it to me because I knew I had to read it to you. This, this contrast between David and his greater son, Jesus. David stayed home from battle and walked into sin. Christ willingly left his home to fight the battle against sin and to win that battle on a cross and with an empty tomb. King David took someone's life in order to cover up his sin. Jesus willingly laid down his life to forgive the sins of others. King David took a bride that was not rightfully his. Through living a holy and blameless life, shedding his blood and rising from the dead, Jesus purchased a people for his own possession, a holy bride composed of people from all tribes and tongues and nations. A bride composed of people like me and people like you. Because God is faithful. God put the story of King David and Bathsheba in the warning in the Bible as a warning against the destructive tendencies of sin, but also as a foreshadowing of the freedom from sin which Christ has won for his people. God is faithful. Christmas is about the gospel. Christmas is about the faithfulness of God to bring the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who would sit on the throne of David his father. Nobody in this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 deserved to be in this genealogy. It is the faithfulness of God that brings that about. He brought the Messiah. He fulfilled his plan. There was nothing that anyone could do to hinder that. Because God is faithful and he is merciful. And I hope you're thankful for that. I hope you remember as you think about Christmas this year. Man, next Sunday is Christmas Eve. And as you uh, move this week toward that and... and uh, if you're one of the ones that hasn't decorated yet and you're working on it, you're decorating the tree and you're putting up the lights, I hope you remember they reflect the light of the world. That's the point of the lights. You light the candles. We have candles in our windows and every night they, they're on hoping to just symbolically point at the light of the world who is Jesus. Next Sunday we will do a candle lighting ceremony, taking it from the center candle in our Advent wreath, the Christ candle. We will, we will celebrate Jesus as the light of the world. I hope as you do all of that, you will remember he did that for you. He did that because he is faithful to his promise. He cannot deny himself. Yes, God is faithful to his people, but more importantly, he is faithful to his word. We can always trust him. We can always count on him. And it's why we want to run to him. David could have tried to run the other way. He actually tried that first, right? Well, let me see if I can get him back here. No, I'll cover it up. No, okay, well, then I'll just kill him and get him out of the way. Nobody will know. We'll be good. And when he got pointed out, he ran to God and said, I have sinned against you. And God made it right. God has this incredible capacity to fulfill his will and his plan and his purpose no matter what's happening in the world. So you're a little uneasy about 
wars happening in Israel or in Ukraine or wherever it is or news you hear, we don't have to be worried about that. God is still in charge. He is the king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus is coming back. And we look forward to that, right? Advent for us is partly a reminder Jesus is coming again. We're still waiting for Jesus to come. He came once and he's coming again just as surely as he came the first time. Because God is faithful to his promises. Amen? All right, listen, we're going we're gonna, to uh, sing a little more. The team's going to come back up. Then I'll come back up and dismiss with our benediction. But... If you're here and you didn't get a chance to sign up for dinner, listen, there is always more than enough food. And if there isn't, you can have chucks. Um, (laughs) uh, We would love to have you stick around, enjoy some lunch and some fellowship together. Um, I'm so grateful for the goodness of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we look at stories like this and we wonder. We just, we cannot imagine how it is that you can take such really horrible circumstances that had no business happening, and yet uh, in the midst of it all, you were still working out your plan. I'm really grateful, Lord, that, uh, that I don't have enough capacity to mess up your plan. I thank you that you are faithful. You're faithful to your word. You proved it by sending Jesus uh, at what we celebrate as Christmas so long ago. I'm just so incredibly grateful, as I know are all those who are followers of Jesus here. Lord, I pray for the one who might be here that hasn't trusted Christ. Lord, I pray that they would be willing to turn from their sin and believe in the gospel that Jesus came at Christmas, came and lived a perfect life, died and paid for our sin, was buried and on the third day came back literally to life again. And then that having believed that and turned from their sin, I pray they would receive Christ. And Lord, I I pray that as uh, there are people down front here, if someone needs to be ministered to, Lord. I pray they'd come. So talk to them, pray with them, find out what it is that that they need to deal with. But God, I pray that this day would be a day that we are reminded you are merciful and faithful and that we would walk with joy in that confidence in Jesus' name.